Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Dion Gordon Podcast. I'm your host, the connoisseur of common sense, the purveyor of authenticity, the man who calls it right down the middle. Dion Tyree Gordon, enough of the bullshit. Let's get to work. The word of the day, there is none. Straight to the point, cut to the chase on this podcast. There is no word of the day. There's too much football to be talking about right now to try to sum it up with just one word. Even I can't do that. Even a wordsmith such as myself cannot use only one word to accurately describe everything that is going on in the world of football this week. So with that being said, let's get right into it. Let's get straight to the meat and potatoes of the situation. Cut right to the chase. All things football on this podcast, this calendar week of December the 12th through December the 19th. So without further ado, let's dive right into this. And let's start, of course, with my beloved San Francisco 49ers, who this past Sunday vanquished the Cincinnati Bengals 26-23 in overtime. A thrilling, exciting, captivating, edge-of-your-seat football game that went down to the wire could have gone either way. Fortunately, it went the 49ers' way. They were up 20-6 to at one point in this game, choked the lead away, had to go into overtime, and able to come out on top 26-23. This was a game riddled with mistakes and turnovers and miscues by the Bengals. This was a game that the Niners didn't really play that well in overall, but they played well enough, and they executed better than Cincinnati, and they were able to take advantage of all of Cincinnati's fuck-ups. So, I mean... You're going to have games like that. It's not always going to be pretty. And they said that in the locker room um, after the game was over. Um, It's not always going to be pretty. It's not always going to be ideal. It's not not always going to go the way you think it's going to go. Sometimes you have to go on the road and win tough football games like that. If you want to be a playoff football team, if you really want to play in January and hopefully into February, you're going to have to win some ugly games like that. And the Niners showed grit and determination. They were able to come out on top and win a tough game on the road against a good Cincinnati Bengals football team. This was a battle of the two seven seeds in the NFL in their respective conferences coming into this game. The Bengals were the seven seed in the AFC. The Niners going into this game were the seven seed in the NFC. So you're playing a playoff caliber football team, a team that's pretty much right on par with you. So this was a good game and a good test. And fortunately, like I said, the Niners were able to come out on top. Uh, George Kittle had a monster football game. Probably, not even probably, this was his best game of the season. In this game, Kittle caught 13 passes for 151 yards and one touchdown. Uh, He was amazing. He looked like the best tight end in pro football. It's between either he or Travis Kelsey who showed out tonight against the L.A. Chargers. More on that in a little bit. But George Kittle, I'll admit I'm biased. I'm partial towards him. He plays for my favorite football team. So I'm always going to rank Kittle a little bit slightly ahead of Travis Kelsey. It's it's like apples and oranges. It's splitting hairs. You can take either one or the other. It doesn't really matter. They're both phenomenal tight ends. And like I said, the two best tight ends in pro football to me with, with apologies to Mark Andrews and TJ Hawkinson and Darren Waller and Noah Fant and guys like that, Rob Gronkowski. With apologies to those guys, I would say Kelsey and Kittle were the two best in the league. Uh, but Kittle, monster game. Debo Samuel came back from injury off the growing that he had against Minnesota. Uh, scored a rushing touchdown in this game. Once again, not too much not too much production out of Debo in the passing game. Not really being used or targeted that much. But, I mean, touchdowns are touchdowns. If you score a rushing touchdown or a receiving touchdown, it doesn't matter. It's still six points for your team. It still leads to winning football games. And Debo Samuel, as I said before about him on this podcast, you really can't just assign him one specific position. He's a weapon. 
He's a football player. He's a utility knife, a Swiss Army knife. He does a little bit of everything, and he is vital. He is absolutely integral to what the 49ers want to do on offense. His versatility and his overall playmaking ability, you can't replace it, and there's no substitute for it. You saw it last week against Seattle. Debo Samuel not out there. The 49ers couldn't score at all in the second half of that football game. Debo Samuel got hurt against Minnesota um, in the third quarter and didn't play at all in the fourth quarter. The 49ers did not score in the fourth quarter of that football game. If Debo Samuel's not on the field, the 49ers' offense doesn't work. Even in this game with Debo on the field, the Niners only scored three points in the second half. I mean, this game this game went to overtime, and it probably shouldn't have. Um, it was 20-6. to six. The Niners had the lead in the second half, and then Cincinnati comes right back. And part of that was because the 49ers' offense could not score or move the football really at all in the entire second half. Fortunately, they, they were able to hold on and win it. But I've seen this too often from the 49ers this season of having quarters and entire halves of not being able to score football, these lapses of offensive production. You, you cannot win playoff games like that. You're not going to get to the Super Bowl if you have an entire quarter or an entire half of not scoring. This is something that could potentially come back to bite the 49ers at the absolute worst time. You go back to early in the season versus uh, Philadelphia, week two, almost went the entire first half without scoring. Uh, week three, the home opener, Sunday night versus Green Bay, they go almost the entire first half without scoring. If it wasn't for a 68-yard kick return by Trenton Cannon and a Trey Lance five-yard touchdown run, the Niners wouldn't have scored in the first half of that game. Versus Seattle, week four, a week later, they outgained the Seahawks 238-7 to in the first half, only had seven points to show for it. They scored the opening drive, couldn't score the, uh, the rest of the first half. So you keep having these long droughts of not scoring points, eventually it's going to cost you. Thankfully, it didn't cost us last Sunday. Jimmy Garoppolo, the much maligned, much scrutinized, much criticized, polarizing quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, a guy that if you've been listening to the podcast, you know I'm not very fond of as a quarterback, not my favorite guy in the league, not even my favorite guy in the team. But if I had the greatest performance last Sunday in Cincinnati, I'd give it a solid B. Um, 27 to 41, 296, two touchdowns, no turnovers. He had a fumble that he recovered. He had a pick that should have been a pick six to lose the game. Uh, it was dropped by Jesse Bates, the safety for the Cincinnati Bengals, one of the best safeties in the NFL, by the way. Uh, fortunately for the Niners, he dropped that would have been interception, which would have ended the game pretty much. Uh, but, you know, on the stat sheet, Jimmy played a clean game. There was no boneheaded interceptions like you saw last week versus Seattle where he's playing catch with Bobby Wagner or getting picked off by Quandre Diggs when he overshoots a receiver. There were some high passes. I mean, it was a typical Jimmy Garoppolo game. There were inaccurate throws. He missed high. You know, Jimmy's passes are higher than Roger Craig's knees. Maybe the 49ers have signed Giannis Antetokounmpo and Joel Embiid to play wide receiver to catch these high-ass passes from Jimmy Garoppolo. But fortunately, he's got playmakers all over the field. He's got guys like George Kittle and Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk who's able to bail him out and make spectacular heroic catches to rescue these high-ass passes and bring it into their possession for the 49ers. There's also a few misreads, which is typical with any Garoppolo game, typical almost with any quarterback, to be honest. I mean, I saw Mahomes tonight miss a couple of guys who were wide open. He had uh, Tyreek Hill in the end zone by himself and never even saw him, never threw the ball to him. Twice he did that. So quarterbacks do this. I think a lot of times, myself included, admittedly, a lot of people sometimes maybe a little too hard on Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, you know, it's, it's the toughest position in sports. It's the hardest position to play in all of sports. It's the most important position in all of sports, and that's why there's so much scrutiny attached to it. And that's why Jimmy Garoppolo 
hear so much criticism from assholes like me because you played the, the toughest position in all of sports for a glamour signature franchise, for a team that has a historical pedigree, a lineage, a tradition, a history of stellar quarterback play. Joe Montana played for the 49ers, and so did Steve Young. And to a lesser extent, Jeff Garcia and Alex Smith and Colin Kaepernick and John Brody way back in the day. But speaks to my point. There's a lineage, there's a pedigree, there's a tradition, a standard of excellence that goes along with playing quarterback for the 49ers. And guys like me, Niner fans like me, just want to hold people to a standard. We want to hold people accountable. Jimmy's not the best. Jimmy's not the worst. He's, he's not the drizzling shits. He's not fucking amazing either. But on this particular day, he did his job. That's the best thing I can say about Jimmy Garoppolo. He did his job. In the words of Bill Belichick, do your job. And that's what Jimmy Garoppolo did last Sunday. The first four quarters, regulation, up and down. Once again, missed receivers, fumbling the ball, but fortunately picking it up, throwing the would-be pick six to end the game. You know, just up and down play, erratic throws. But then you get in overtime. Really, the last drive of the game, last drive of the fourth quarter, he was awesome. And then in overtime, he goes six out of six, takes the team down the field after Cincinnati got the ball first and to settle for a field goal after Nick Bosa, Nick fucking Bosa, who should be in the conversation for defensive player of the year, records his second sack of the game on Joe Burrow to crush that Bengals opening possession in overtime and hold them to a field goal. The Niners get the ball right back. Jimmy takes the team down the field, six out of six. The drive culminates with a three-yard pass into the flat. The Brandon Ayuk, who takes the ball the rest of the way, about 10 to 15 yards, leaps across the goal line with his outstretched right arm, going over the pylon and over the goal line. Touchdown, 49ers. Walk-off victory. The Niners won the game. Jimmy Garoppolo did his fucking job. That's the best thing I can say about him. That's the highest praise I can give him. He did his fucking job. Wasn't amazing, but it wasn't shit either. It was good enough to win. And he bailed out the absolutely miserable Robbie Gold, who missed a potential game-winning field goal at the end of regulation. Robbie Gold appears to miss a kick every week. Um, they gave him a lot of money. The Niners gave Robbie Gold a pretty nice contract. For what, I don't know. We are not getting a proper return on this investment. He's missing kicks. He missed a, a point-after attempt versus Minnesota two weeks ago. He's terrible. He's unreliable. You can't have a kicker this unreliable on a team that has playoff and Super Bowl aspirations. Robbie Gold's going to cost the 49ers at some point this season in a big game. He's awful. He's inconsistent and just can't be depended on. 49ers special teams have been awful. I detailed that last week when I talked about Richard Hightower, the special teams coordinator. It hasn't been good in about a decade in the kicking game. Robbie Gold is a big part of the 49ers special teams just not being consistently good and being unreliable and being a potential detriment and a hindrance to the 49ers and where they want to go and how they want to finish their season. If you can't depend on your kicker, it's tough to go forward in the playoffs. It's going to be really tough. This was a game that could have gone either way. Uh, Cincinnati woke up in the second half and started firing strikes downfield I'm watching this game, you know, as a 49er fan, but also a football fan. I'm thinking to myself, what is going on with Cincinnati's game plan? You know you're going up against a depleted secondary with the San Francisco 49ers. You got Josh Norman, a walking defensive pass interference on one side. And on the other side, you have a rookie in Ambry Thomas making his first start in the NFL. And he had some, he had a, up and, he had a rough game. Let's call it what it is. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't great. It was okay. He held his own enough, but... It's a tough assignment. This is a fourth-round draft pick, a guy who hasn't gotten that much playing time all season long, and he's being asked to cover 
one of the best receivers in the NFL, a great young up-and-coming wide receiver in Jamar Chase. And he's being asked to cover this guy one-on-one. So many injuries. You lost Jason Verrett in week one. You lost Emmanuel Mosley two weeks ago against Minnesota. Dante Johnson, um, send your thoughts and prayers out to him and, and best wishes and all the good, positive, goodwill you can possibly uh, muster up for Dante, Dante Johnson and his family. Uh, unfortunately for him and his family, his mother had a heart attack and died the morning of the game or the night before the game. So he was unable to make the trip for obvious reasons. So, you know, once again, man, send send your, your thoughts and prayers if you're so inclined to do so and best wishes and just keep Dante Johnson and his family in your thoughts. Uh, that's a, a tragic, catastrophic, horrible, shitty situation that he had to go through and endure. Once again, man, all jokes aside and all football talk aside, I know Dante Johnson's another guy that I've not – been a big fan of on the 49ers but that's, that's football this is real life uh you know best wishes and my and my thoughts go out to this brother and, uh but the Niners secondary was was downtrodden was beleaguered and I was confused as to why Cincinnati just didn't attack it downfield more often they play such a conservative game uh just trying to run the football between the tackles you got a guy like Joe Mixon who's a quality NFL running back but I'm thinking to myself, you got Jamar Chase, you got T. Higgins, uh, the tight end, U- Uzama. You got weapons. You got a guy like Joe Burrow that can push it down the field vertically. And you're going up against a bad secondary in the 49ers. I just didn't understand from their perspective why they didn't attack down the field more aggressively and with more regularity. But as a 49er fan, I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they went out there with such a stupid game plan and worked out for us. The Niners were able to win. Uh, but it's, well, once again, just confused um, as far as Cincinnati's play calling and, and approach was concerned. It just didn't make any sense to me. Cincinnati, to me, is one of those teams that they're good. They got a lot of really good young football players, a lot of potential for that team. Uh, bright future is ahead for the Cincinnati Bengals. But currently, right now, they don't know how to win football games, similar to the L.A. Chargers, who I'm about to get to in a little bit. Cincinnati and the Chargers are they're wet behind the ears. The breath still smells like Similac. They don't, they're too young for this. They don't know how to win football games yet. You know, it hasn't dawned on them yet how to win and close out and finish football games, how to execute in critical situations. They don't know how to do that yet. Cincinnati plays in the AFC North, and they're second place in that division. That's a bad division from the standpoint that the four teams in that division don't appear as if they want to win that division. The Ravens are struggling right now. Uh, You look at Cleveland. They've been up and down all season and banged up with a lot of injuries. You look at Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has been playing shitty football for the majority of the season. But yet here they are, only like one and a half games out of first place. So that division is there for the taking. A team like Cincinnati, that's the healthiest team in that division. They have all their guys. They're not really missing anyone. Trey Hendrickson, their star edge rusher, who was whipping Trent Williams' ass. I'm not even going to lie. We call it right down the middle over here in the Deion Gordon podcast. As awesome as Trent Williams is, if you listen to this podcast, you know how much I'm a fan of Trent Williams. Uh, he got served up by Trey Hendrickson in that game in the first half. Fortunately for the Niners, he injured himself in the second half. I think it was a growing that he injured and could not play, couldn't continue the rest of the game. So a lot of breaks went the Niners' way. But other than Trey Hendrickson and whatever his injury might be, I don't think it's that serious. Cincinnati's pretty healthy. They have all their pieces intact for the most part. Certainly a lot healthier than Baltimore and Cleveland are, who are just beset by injuries right now and COVID restrictions. 
So it's there for the taking for Cincinnati. The only question is, do they know how to finish? Do they know how to win? Do they know how to get shit done when shit needs to get done? The answer so far, no. What I saw last Sunday versus San Francisco, no. Cincinnati does not know how to win yet. But as CeeLo Green and Goody Mob once told us, in due time, it'll come eventually. Young pieces still finding their way. You got to overcome a losing culture in Cincinnati. You got to establish a winning culture. It's going to take time. Rome was not built in the day. I don't mind Cincinnati. I like the pieces they got. I'm a fan of Burrow. I'm a fan of Chase. I'm a fan of T. Higgins. I'm a fan of Trey Henderson. All these guys, Jesse Bates, all these guys I've talked about so far in this podcast from the Bengals, I'm a fan of these guys. I like the makeup of Cincinnati's team. I like the direction they're going in. They just need experience. Like I said, still wet behind the ears. Breath still smell like Similac. Moving on to tonight's game, Thursday night football. A game I was looking forward to. I was hyped by this game. Good old-fashioned AFC West showdown. Good old-fashioned AFL showdown. This goes way back, these two teams. Long-standing rivalry, about 50-plus years. Kansas City Chiefs and the Los Angeles Chargers. Got to make sure you slow yourself down when you say the name of the city the Chargers currently play in. As I heard about nine times throughout the broadcast tonight, people still refer to them as the San Diego Chargers. They've been gone from San Diego for about four or five years now. I don't know why people still call them San Diego. The Los Angeles Chargers. Nevertheless, big game, Chargers, Chiefs, San Diego, Los Angeles, Patrick Mahomes versus a guy who has now become my second favorite quarterback in the NFL. I'm talking about Justin Herbert. Two awesome, phenomenal, legitimate, real quarterbacks in this game. Extraordinary arm talent. Two guys that can make every throw to every part of the field. I knew this game was going to be fire and lived up to the billing. And Justin Herbert, there's a reason this guy's my second favorite quarterback in the NFL. Second only to the, to the GOAT, Thomas Edward Patrick Brady. Justin Herbert, out of all the quarterbacks in the NFL who have elite arm talent, in my opinion, Mahomes, Matt Stafford, Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, Aaron Rodgers, who put on a fucking show versus the Bears on Sunday Night Football. That was amazing what Aaron Rodgers did to the team he owns, the Chicago Bears. But if all the quarterbacks in the NFL with supernatural arm talent, I think Herbert, all things considered, might have the best arm in the NFL, the most electric arm in all of pro football. He had a play last week versus uh, the, the pitiful New York Giants where he rolled to his right, stopped, got hit on the play, and unleashed a 65-yard rocket, a laser, a moonshot, a kill shot, down the field and hit his receiver Jalen Guyton in stride in the end zone for a touchdown. If you haven't seen this throw, you need to. First of all, what's wrong with you? This play happened last Sunday. Today is currently Thursday. You have four days to watch this fucking throw. This throw was amazing. This was the throw of the season. This might be the best throw I've ever seen. I got to think about that one. But this was, it was crazy. This was a ridiculous throw. He's rolling to his right. He barely got enough time to set his feet. He got hit on the play. He threw it from about the 35-yard line, the 40-yard line maybe, into the about five yards into the end zone on a rope. This was a fucking dime. This was more than a dime. This is a dime, a quarter, two nickels, a silver dollar, 10 bucks, all that. This was an incredible throw. YouTube this throw. Take time out of your day. You're watching TikTok videos and stupid shit anyway. Stop doing that. Watch Justin Herbert throw a football. 
The guy is fucking phenomenal. Every time I watch Justin Herbert play, I think to myself, who was it from the Miami Dolphins that watched Justin Herbert throw a football and then watched Tua Tungavailoa throw a football and said, you know what? We're going to go with this noodle arm motherfucker who has to use his entire body to throw a 10-yard out. We're going to take that guy over this other guy who has a licensed weapon attached to his right shoulder. Justin Herbert's right arm is not an actual right arm. It's a fucking rocket launcher. It's a flamethrower. He is a cheat code in Grand Theft Auto. The guy is fucking incredible. My favorite, my second favorite quarterback in the NFL, Justin Herbert. I wish, I sincerely, I don't mind saying this. He's one of those guys I look at and I say to myself, I wish you played for the 49ers. Jimmy Garoppolo, eh, he's all right. He's okay. He's decent. He's whatever. He's He'll do for now. Eh, okay, whatever, cool. Justin Herbert, yeah, I'll take, I'll take that guy. I'll take 10 to 15 years of rockets and lasers and kill shots being thrown all over Levi Stadium. That's what I hope Trey Lance can be one day. So needless to say, I was excited about watching this game tonight. Chargers, Chiefs, Mahomes, Herbert, I couldn't wait for this game, and the game did not disappoint. Um, I take that back. The game did disappoint because of the overall stupidity being displayed by Chargers head coach Brandon Staley, who foolishly left nine points on the field throughout the game. Several times throughout the game, the Chargers drove the ball deep in the Chiefs' territory, and had to settle for a field goal, or at least they should have settled for a field goal. They got the fourth down, they went for it, and they missed it. One out, one out of four fourth down conversions for the entire game. Three times they did not convert on fourth down when they were in Chiefs territory and could have just taken an easy field goal. Just take the points. The biggest thing in football that really grinds my gears, chaps my hide, and makes my chili run hot is when coaches don't take the fucking points. They leave points on the field. All this analytics bullshit. Stop doing that. Chargers are up 14-10 at one point in this game. Chiefs get off to a 10-0 lead. Chargers fight back. Two touchdowns unanswered. They're up 14-10. They're driving before the half. The drive stalls out. They're at about the 15-yard line. Time is running out. It's about five seconds on the clock before halftime. They go for it. They don't get it. So you go into halftime only up 14-13 now. You come out in the second half, the third quarter, you get the ball again, you drive down the field. The drive stalls out again. You once again go forward on fourth, you don't convert again. This is stupid football. You could have been up 20 to 10, 20 to 13. Instead, it's only 14, 13. You're leaving Kansas City on the hook. You're leaving them in the game. And against a quality championship caliber football team like that, a team that's played in the last two Super Bowls, a team with the offensive firepower of Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and Miko Hardman and all those guys and the offensive line being great, Creed Humphrey, Joe Tooney, all those guys. With Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy calling the plays, this is, a, this is a legitimate football team. With that being said, I got I to gotta own it right now. I got to apologize to the Kansas City Chiefs. I foolishly, stupidly counted them out. I came on this podcast and said, I don't know if Kansas City is going to make the playoffs this year. That was back in October. That was stupid. That was not a very intelligent thing to say. That was dumb. One of the things I've learned throughout the entirety of this season is that every team in the NFL is going to have a stretch of bad football. For Kansas City, it happened early. They got it out of their system in the first two months of the season. They got off to a terrible start. 
the defense couldn't stop a nosebleed. Since then, the defense has been stopping everybody. They've been lights out on defense. They shut down the Cowboys. They shut down the Raiders. Let me get to this real quick. Um, the, the Las Vegas, L.A., Oakland, West of the Mississippi Raiders are a fucking joke. This team goes to midfield in Kansas City to celebrate or just mock and ridicule the Chiefs. I don't know what the fuck they were trying to do, trying to get themselves hype up for the game. You lost this team 41-14 when you played them three weeks ago on Sunday night. Why are you even fucking with them like this? Why are you at midfield dancing around and trying to provoke them or whatever it is they're trying to do? This team beat the brakes off you two or three weeks ago. They own you. And then the game starts and Josh Jacobs fumbles the first play of the game and you end up losing 48-9. The Chiefs and the Raiders have played two games this season. The combined score of those games is 89-23 Chiefs. Raiders, shut the fuck up. You are not what you think you are. This is not 1983 You are not the swashbuckling pirates that everyone in the league is intimidated by. You're just the fucking Raiders. You're an abortion of a football team. You're a a joke. You're embarrassing. Your coach got fired back in October. Your star wide receiver thinks he's Caitlyn Jenner behind the wheel of a car. He's running people over in the streets. Your team sucks. You haven't made the playoffs in who knows how many years. The last time the Raiders had a quality football team, they got earth, wind, fire, and ice beaten out of them in Super Bowl 37 by the Buccaneers. Who the fuck do the Raiders think they are? That was embarrassing. That was shameful. That was sad. That really was. To see grown men behave like that. Yannick Ngakwe is leading this whole thing. I mean, and you saw guys like running up to be involved in this whole fiasco and like kind of nervous about it, trepidatious about it. That shit was a pure disgrace. Uh, the, the pregame display and the way the Raiders played in that game and the way the Raiders have functioned for the past 20 years overall, absolutely disgraceful. They should be ashamed of themselves. Get the fuck out of here, Raiders. Go away with that shit. But back to Kansas City and back to my apology to them. Maybe I, I, I jumped the gun. There's no maybe about it. I did. Uh, a little bit, you know, too, uh, too eager to throw dirt on the casket for the Kansas City Chiefs. Maybe a residual effect Kansas City beating my beloved 49ers in Super Bowl 54 and maybe some hostility I still have towards them for that. Uh, But this is a team, as I said earlier, championship pedigree, championship DNA, been there, done that. All the key figures for the championship run and window they've currently been in and the recent success they've had, they're all still there. So why should anyone count these guys out? And since idiots like me foolishly count them out back in October, They've peeled off like a seven-game win streak. They were 3-4, and four, now they're 10-4. And, and they are the number one seed in the AFC after tonight's victory versus the Chargers. And again, the Chargers tried really, really hard to lose. And again, they left points on the field. You keep leaving points on the field, you keep leaving the door open for a team like Kansas City to come back and kick your ass. And that's what they did. And you got Travis Kelsey running wild. As soon as that game was tied up at 28 and going into overtime, seeing how gassed out and exhausted the Chargers' defense was, seeing Joey Bosa and guys like that walking around with their hands on their hips, going into overtime and seeing the opening coin flip and seeing that Kansas City got the ball first, I knew immediately, this is a dub, this is a wrap, this shit's over. Kansas City is going to win this football game, and it did. And you got Travis Kelsey running right through the Chargers' defense, 
untouched, zigzagging, running through these guys. There was like three guys within five yards of him. They could have made a tackle. They couldn't, couldn't get it done. Big-time players make big-time plays in big-time games. And Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes, those are big-time football players. They've been there and done that. They know what time it is. Take everything I said about Cincinnati and apply it to Kansas City. When it's time to get shit done, the Chiefs get shit done. And they win. And they show and prove. And this is who they are. And don't be surprised. See, now I'm going to go the whole opposite direction. I counted them out back in October. Now I'm going to say this is a team that very well could be back in the Super Bowl this season. Would not surprise me at all if this is Kansas City's first trip to SoFi Stadium and their second trip is for Super Bowl 56 the first Sunday in February. Wouldn't surprise me at all if this team emerges out of the American Football Conference and gets to their third consecutive Super Bowl, something we have not seen since the Buffalo Bills of the early 90s. It's, it's remarkable to watch. And uh, you know tonight they played without Chris Jones, their best player on defense, um, and still won the game. Now the Chargers were minus Rashawn Slater, their star right tackle that they drafted in the first round out of Northwestern this year. So it kind of evened out. But you saw you know the Chargers did have, did have 190 yards rushing on the ground in this game with Chris Jones not being in the lineup. But once Spagnolo, the uh, defensive coordinator for Kansas City, made the move to put Chris Jones back in his natural position, which is something that I did say on this podcast. I said Chris Jones is an interior lineman, and other than Aaron Donald, in my opinion, the best interior lineman in the NFL, and he needs to be moved back to his real original position. They had him playing on the edge, on the outside, in the beginning of the season. It didn't work. But you move him back inside where he's supposed to be, and then you have Frank Clark and Melvin Ingram on the edges. Lethal defense right now in Kansas City. The secondary playing better. If they're stopping people on defense, and Mahomes is starting to get his mojo going and cutting down the turnovers, although he did have a fumble tonight, but not so many picks being thrown by Mahomes the past couple of weeks. Yeah, this team could easily be in their third consecutive Super Bowl in Super Bowl 56 in February 2022. Wouldn't surprise me at all. I can tell you who won't be in Super Bowl 56. That's the already eliminated 2-11 Jacksonville Jaguars who last night fired their embattled, piece-of-shit, douchebag, jackass head coach Urban Meyer. What an absolute catastrophic disaster Urban Meyer was as an NFL head coach for only 13 games Let's run down the resume. Let's take a look at the career of Urban Meyer as an NFL head coach because he probably will not get another opportunity in the NFL. Let's start with the on-field ineptitude. Urban Meyer's Jacksonville Jaguars, 2-11, a winning percentage of 154, a minus 19 turnover differential, worst in the NFL, 13.8 points per game offensively, second worst in the NFL, 26.2 points per game allowed defensively, sixth worst in the NFL. But you know, it's a young football team. I mean, 2-11 is terrible, but that's still a one-game improvement over what they did last year. They were 1-15 last season. They won their first game of the season against Indianapolis and then proceeded to go on a 15-game losing streak. So two wins is a one-game improvement. And besides, this is a young football team, not very good, 1-15 a year ago, had the number one pick for a reason. The cupboard is bare down there in Jacksonville. Not a whole lot of talent on that football team. They're expected to lose. They're not supposed to be good this year. So maybe we can find a silver lining. I know. 
the number one pick in the draft last year, the generational talent, the guy who I was told was a prototype NFL quarterback, the next great NFL QB, following in the same footsteps of Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning and John Elway, the guy that was a can't-miss prospect, Trevor Lawrence, quarterback from Clemson University, maybe he individually is having a pretty decent season. Maybe he's getting better and taking strides. Maybe he's progressing throughout the entire season. So you have, you have something to look forward to next year. You can say, if you're a Jaguars fan, you can say, well, at least we got Trevor Lawrence, and at least he's improving on a week-to-week basis, except he's not. Trevor Lawrence has regressed throughout the entire season. He is not playing good football at all. Last Sunday versus a division rival, the Tennessee Titans, Trevor Lawrence threw four interceptions, no touchdowns, and the Tennessee Titans shut out the Jacksonville Jaguars last Sunday. 20 to nothing. Trevor Lawrence on the regular season has thrown for 2,735 yards, only nine touchdown passes, and 14 interceptions for a quarterback rating of 68.9. He's struggling, and that's, and that's an understatement. That's being nice about it. He's having a horrible season. And as I said, he's not even progressing. There's nothing positive about his game right now. You can't look at anything with Trevor Lawrence and saying, you know what, he's trending in the right direction. So there's some hope, some optimism for Jaguars fans, something, something to look forward to going forward. You don't even have that. He's making bad reads. He's making bad throws, bad decisions. He's holding on to the ball too long. He's getting hit too much. He's playing bad football, and I don't blame him. This is not even on him. He's a young player. He's a rookie. I don't care about what the expectations were. He's a rookie, and he has nothing around him, and he's a part of a a football team that is the drizzling shits of the NFL, an absolutely putrid organization that thought that hiring Urban Meyer was a good idea. I feel bad for Trevor Lawrence. His NFL career is off to a rough start because you come into a tumultuous situation with an idiotic college football coach who thought that bringing in Tim Tebow in the offseason to play tight end would be a good idea, who thought that bringing in his strength and conditioning coach from Ohio State will be a good idea, despite him being a racist piece of shit. Let's just go ahead and run through the timeline of Urban Meyer's debacle of a tenure with the Jacksonville Jaguars. He's hired on February the 11th. I'm sorry, take it back to the very beginning. He's hired on January 14th, 2021. Hired by the Jacksonville Jaguars by Shad Khan, the owner of the Jaguars. So there you go, that's January. February, Chris Doyle, the uh, aforementioned douchebag strength and conditioning coach, racist piece of shit, resigns under pressure, under accusations of racist remarks and bullying during his time with the Iowa Hawkeyes. He resigned less than 48 hours after numerous protests, including a statement from the Fritz Pollard Alliance denouncing a failure of leadership by the Jacksonville Jaguars. That's one month into the tenure of Urban Meyer. On May 20th, 2021, the Jaguars signed former Nice High School and University of Florida quarterback Tim Tebow, who won two national titles and a Heisman Trophy under Urban Meyer while with the Florida Gators in 2007 and 2008. After a six-year hiatus from playing football, which included a stint in playing minor league baseball for the New York Mets farm system, Tim Tebow, a former quarterback who had no experience whatsoever at any point in his life, playing tight end. Urban Meyer, in his infinite wisdom, thought it'd be a great idea to bring in Tim Tebow to play tight end. I made a podcast about this six months ago, denouncing the stupid bullshit from the moment that I heard it. This was fucking 
embarrassing. This is a joke. You're going to bring in a guy with no experience playing tight end and have him play tight end? He's 31 years old. He's a former quarterback. He's been playing minor league baseball for the past five years and wasn't even good at that. And you're going to bring this guy in to play tight end. You just had an NFL draft a month prior where you could have selected any tight end you wanted to take in that draft. You had seven rounds, and you had the first pick in every round of the draft. You could have taken any tight end you wanted to. You didn't take any, but you brought in Tim Tebow, your friend, your homeboy from back in the day. Good job, Urban. So you got the Chris Doyle situation. You got Tim Tebow. You got all types of chicanery and tomfoolery going on. Now we move on to July 1st, 2021. The NFL fined Urban Meyer $100,000 and the Jaguars $200,000 for violating league rules on contact during offseason practices. The Jags also would lose two OTA sessions this coming season. On July 14th, just a few days later, about a month later, the Jaguars and Urban Meyer were issued subpoenas by the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Iowa for documents, electronic transmissions, and other evidence related to the hiring and subsequent resignation of Chris Doyle. The subpoenas were part of attorneys for former Iowa football players who were seeking evidence in their $20 million racial discrimination civil lawsuit against Iowa. On October 2, 2021, a video surfaced showing a woman dancing in close contact with Meyer at a Columbus, Ohio restaurant that he owns one day after the Jaguars lost to the Cincinnati Bengals on Thursday night football. Urban Meyer stayed in Ohio as opposed to returning to Jacksonville with his team. Shad Khan described Urban Meyer's conduct in the video as, quote, inexcusable, saying that the coach must regain our trust and respect. Meyer apologized to the team and his family, calling his behavior stupid for creating a distraction. A second video later surfaced, more clearly showing Meyer's hand touching the woman's ass. On December 5th, 2021, for the second week in a row, James Robinson, the Jaguars' 1,000-yard back uh, and rookie rusher from 2020, is benched for an extended period of time for fumbling. Robinson had only lost one fumble in two years before the Atlanta and Los Angeles Rams games. Over a period of two weeks, Urban Meyer alternately blamed Robinson's injury and running backs coach Bernie Parmalee uh, rotation for benching James Robinson. On December 11th, an NFL media report stated that there was turmoil within the locker room and coaching staff because of Meyer demanding his assistant coaches defend their records and a heated argument he had with wide receiver Marvin Jones Jr., who was said to have left the stadium and refused to return until talked back. Meyer disputed the characterizations of his meeting with the staff in his conversation with Jones, the latter version confirmed by Marvin Jones in an awkward news conference last Wednesday. And yesterday, I'm sorry, December 15th, just two days ago, former Jaguars kicker Josh Lambeau revealed to the Tampa Bay Times and First Coast News that Urban Meyer cursed him out and kicked him while he was stretching during a practice in the preseason. When Lambeau told Meyer to never kick him again, Lambeau said Meyer's response was, I'm the head ball coach. I'll kick you whenever the fuck I want. Lambeau also said Meyer threatened him in the team's dining facility with cutting him. Meyer denied the incident in a statement. On December 16, 2021, Shad Khan fired Urban Meyer in a statement issued shortly after 12.30 p.m., 12.30 a.m. Excuse me, and um, offensive coordinator Daryl Bevel was named interim coach for the rest of the season. All of that, according to USA Today, where do I even begin with this? Urban Meyer 
I mean, you want to talk about like college football coaches who failed on a on a spectacular level in the NFL. He takes the cake. He beats Bobby Petrino. Bobby Petrino quit on the Atlanta Falcons back in about 2008 after 13 games. And two days later, or the very next day, was down in Fayetteville, Arkansas, saying woo pick suey as he took the Arkansas Razorback job. That was fucked up. That was ridiculous. That was out of bounds. That was completely disrespectful and unprofessional. Urban Meyer said, hold on, wait a minute, hold my beer. I got something for you. I got a consistent stream of bullshit stretching out over an entire year almost from January this year to December of this year. And every month in between, Urban Meyer is a complete embarrassment in the NFL. How many coaches have come from college to the NFL and shit the bed this badly? Pretty much all of them. The only college coaches that really had like legitimate success in the NFL Jim Harbaugh, who coached at Stanford and then went to the 49ers and took the Niners to three consecutive NFC championship games. Pete Carroll, who built the juggernaut at USC and has been a consistent winner with the Seattle Seahawks. And Jimmy Johnson, who built up Miami, the U, back in the 80s and then went to the Cowboys and built that team into a juggernaut and won two Super Bowls um, as a coach. And that third team, the 95 Cowboys team, was a team that Jimmy Johnson built so he pretty much won three, really. He should get credit for winning three, I think. I mean, those three are the only college coaches I can think of off top that really has sustained success in the NFL and proved that they belong. The rest of them, Urban Meyer is, I can't even find the words right now. Urban Meyer was a failure, a spectacular failure. Like, what happened? What was this? This was a complete failure. Urban Meyer, Nick Saban, Matt Rule over in Carolina not doing well right now. Uh, you think Bobby Petrino, who I just mentioned? Chip Kelly, how can we forget about Chip Kelly? Great, great college football coach with the Oregon Ducks. Terrible NFL head coach with the Philadelphia Eagles and the San Francisco 49ers. Chip Kelly had one season of coaching the 49ers in 2016. I've said this before in the podcast. That football team is the least talented football team I've ever seen, the least disciplined football team I've ever seen, and historically the worst run defense in NFL history. That 2016 49ers squad gave up 137.5 yards a game on the ground. Chip Kelly was shit. But when you look at the overall, it's not just the on-the-field struggles of the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's the off-the-field bullshit. It's the fines, it's the lawsuits, it's the subpoenas, it's trying to bring in Tim Tebow to play tight end. It's choosing the strength and conditioning coach that you know is a racist piece of shit. It's everything. He did nothing right. Urban Meyer did nothing right in his tenure with the Jacksonville Jaguars. This is the worst coaching hire I've ever seen. When you calculate what he did off the field and how bad this team was on the field, and the lack of development, the regression of Trevor Lawrence, all things considered, Urban Meyer is the worst coach in NFL history. Rich Kotite, you can step aside. You have company. Steve Spurrier was another guy. Legendary, legendary college football coach with the University of Florida and then South Carolina. I'm a Steve Spurrier fan, but with the Washington Redskins, he's no good. He didn't even know the names of his own players on the team. Steve Spurrier was more concerned with his tea time, with playing golf, than he was with being a football coach in the NFL. 
Urban Meyer, same thing. Didn't know his own personnel. When you're the head coach of a football team, you need to be tapped into everything going on with that team. You got to have your hands involved with every aspect of your football team. You got to know everything and everyone. You have to. You got to eat, sleep, and breathe this shit. You got to be the first guy at the team facility, at the office, and the last person to leave. It has to consume you. It can't just be a hobby. It has to be an obsession. You have to live this 24-7, 365, all day, every day, twice on Sunday. This has to be your life. And for guys like Spurrier and Urban Meyer, they didn't want to live it. They came in with the arrogant college approach of thinking, all I got to do is get some good players. I got to recruit, and that'll be enough because in college, that's all you have to do is recruit. If you can recruit better than anyone else, you're going to win. If you got more four-star and five-star players, you're probably going to win. In the NFL, everyone's five-star. Everyone's good. There's no great talent disparity on a week-to-week basis. You're not, you're not playing Northwestern when you're coaching Ohio State. You're not playing against Indiana or Illinois. There's no, there's no layups in the NFL. Even a bad team can get you. Jacksonville beat Buffalo. The Jaguars beat the Bills earlier this season. One of their two wins was against the Buffalo Bills. So the Jags had something going for them. They weren't completely incompetent, but goddamn, when you're this bad off the field and then this bad on the field, how do you not get fired? Urban Meyer couldn't even use white privilege to keep his job. He was that bad. White privilege couldn't even save this man. This is, I can't say it enough, this is the worst coaching hire in NFL history. Urban Meyer never should have been hired in the first place. College football coach, tremendous. Nick Saban is the only college football coach better than him in the last 30 years. That's it. Nick Saban, one. Urban Meyer, two. Everywhere Urban Meyer went in college, he was a winner. Bowling Green, Utah, Florida, Ohio State. Win, 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 win. The programs always got better. Turned them around overnight. He had Utah in the fucking Fiesta Bowl. In 2005, no one cared about Utah football. No one knew about Utah football. He turned Alex Smith into the number one pick in the draft. He's the grandfather of the spread offense. He's, a, he's an elite college football coach, but that's college. NFL, whole different ball game. And he, he painfully found that out. And all of his arrogance and bravado and being conceited and narcissistic and bringing his assistant coaches in and telling them, You know, prove to me you're worthy of being here. Tell me your resume. Urban Meyer, you're the one who hired these people. These are your assistant coaches. You hired them. Why should they have to show you their resume? You should know their resume. You hired them. You're telling your players they're a bunch of losers. You're telling your coaches they're all a bunch of losers. Urban Meyer, you're 2-11 in the NFL. You're currently a loser. And for people who followed Urban Meyer his whole career... They knew this was going to come sooner or later. Me personally, with all the losing Jacksonville was doing, I thought to myself, it's only a matter of time until Urban Meyer pretends to have a heart attack and has to step down from his role as head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. I was waiting on that. That's what he did in Florida back in the day. Once Tim Tebow graduated from school from Florida and left Gainesville, all of a sudden Urban Meyer started having health problems, couldn't coach anymore, had to go somewhere else, had to go on TV for Fox. Then gets a job at Ohio State. They turn around real quick and start winning games, winning national championship in 2015, get caught up in a little bit of a scandal here and there. 
All of a sudden, wait, wait for it, more health problems. Or I just want to watch my daughter play volleyball. You can't believe anything Urban Meyer says. The guy's full of shit. He's a crook. Just an overall duplicitous individual. With Urban Meyer, you get what you pay for. Jacksonville should have known better, but Jacksonville's a clown franchise, so Jacksonville didn't know better. But anyone who follows college football and followed Urban Meyer's career knew this is the kind of guy he is. A douchebag, an asshole, a low-life scumbag, degenerate football coach who has no business being in the NFL. And now that he's fired, he will never again be in the NFL. He'll either be on TV or on someone's college campus in the next, I give it about two years. He'll probably get another head coaching job somewhere in college football in about two years. For some people, the NFL stands for not for long, and Urban Meyer found that out this week. He's gone. He's done. He'll never come back. So that's the NFL. Let's move on to college football. And the big story this week was the top recruit in the entire country, cornerback Travis Hunter, Rivals.com number one recruit, decommitted from Florida State on the NSD to sign with Deion Sanders' Jackson State at HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi. Hunter had been verbally committed to Florida State since 2020. Hunter will be the first ever five-star football recruit to attend an HBCU. This story makes me happy on so many levels. Number one, seeing the rise of the HBCUs right now, seeing all of these historically black colleges and universities come back into prominence and be on the national stage and be talked about. Uh, seeing Deion Sanders at Jackson State and the work he's done down there, that, that team's 11-1. They're going to play in the, the Celebration Bowl at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, the MEAC versus the SWAC. They got sold-out crowds down there in Jackson, Mississippi, 55, 60,000 people to watch HBCU college football. I mean, Deion Sanders is killing it right now in Jackson State. Tremendous job down there. I couldn't possibly be any more proud of him. I couldn't be any happier for him. This is a a childhood favorite of mine, a childhood icon. In my opinion, I've always said Deion Sanders was the greatest football player who ever played football overall. You know, Tom Brady's the GOAT. That's quarterbacks, though. But overall, if you told me I could pick one football player that's not a quarterback to put on my football team – Historically, I would pick Deion Sanders because you got to deal with him on all four downs. On first, second, and third, he's going to eliminate your best receiver from the game. He's going to take him completely out of whatever's going on. He's a non-factor now. Then on fourth down, you got to kick it to him because he can also return kicks. Then he might fuck around and play offense and line up as a wide receiver and make some big plays. He can beat you in all three phases of the game, and you got to deal with him on all four downs. So if we take quarterbacks out of the equation, and you told me I could take any player in NFL history to put on my football team, my first pick, non-quarterback related, is Deion Sanders. Arguably the greatest athlete who ever played football. Don't forget, he was also a baseball player too. This is the only guy who's ever played in a World Series and a Super Bowl. This is next-level shit. That's who he was, an all-time great, the greatest defensive back who ever played football. And now here he is in the year 2021 as a head coach for an HBCU and putting him on the map and making noise and pissing people off, and I'm here for it. I'm absolutely here for it. I got reservations for it. I got a table for two for this. I'm here for this. 
what Deion Sanders is doing in Jackson State, what my man Eddie George is doing at Tennessee State, Grambling State just hired Hugh Jackson. You got all these prominent NFL figures coming to HBCUs and helping reestablish them and give them national recognition. As a black man, I'm so fucking proud and happy to see this. This is great. This is wonderful. We need more of this. Let's keep our athletes with our own people. Let's keep it in-house. Let's keep it black. There's nothing wrong with that. Keep the top athletes in the country with black colleges and universities. If this becomes a trend, I'll be so happy about that. This is wonderful. Keep it in-house. These are our people. These are our kids. These are our athletes. If you can keep them in the HBCU, why not? and build that up, I would very much approve of that. Hunter announced his decision during a ceremony at his school. Early Wednesday afternoon, Hunter had Florida State, Georgia, and Auburn hats in front of him, but threw those to the side and had his mother toss him a Jackson State hat to make it official. Hunter then unzipped his jacket to reveal a Jackson State t-shirt. I can't state how much I love this. Not only are we keeping our athletes home around us, around other black people, but it's pissing off the white folks. And I love that, too. Whoo, Lord, y'all should have seen these folks. You probably already have seen these folks on social media. They are upset. They got their panties in a bunch, clutched the pearls, called the police. How dare this young man make a decision for himself and do something that he wants to do and go where he wants to go to be around people who look like him? How dare he do something like that? He should have went to Florida State. He reneged on his promise. He committed to going to Florida State and then decommitted from Florida State. Shame on him. Shame on that young man. I mean, it's not like coaches do the exact same thing. I mean, that never happens, right? It's not like coaches will take a job at a certain place and then sell their, their recruits and their players a bill of goods about team and togetherness and family and trust and integrity and then overnight take a job somewhere else and abandon those players and take the money and leave. That never happens, right? No, 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 no. That never happens, right? Sure. How dare this young man make a decision for himself? What's wrong with him? Does he not realize he's not going to get national exposure now? How does he expect to get drafted, playing for it? And HBCU, no one watches them. They're never on TV, except for those weekly games that ESPN shows on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN+. He'll never get any exposure, and no one who plays on the FCS level can ever possibly be drafted in the first round, except for 49ers quarterback Trey Lance, who played at North Dakota State and FCS school, and not only was the third pick in the draft, but the 49ers traded two first-round picks to move up and get him at the third pick while playing at North Dakota State. This kid will never have any exposure at Jackson State. No one's ever going to know who he is. He's not going to play against real competition. He's a no-name, or better yet, here, here's my other favorite one I heard the other day. He's only going to play there for one year, and then he's going to follow Deion Sanders to Florida State. Never mind the fact that FSU just gave a contract extension to Mike Norvell. Never mind that. Never mind the fact that Deion Sanders' son, Shador Sanders, plays quarterback for Jackson State and is only a freshman. So I guess Deion Sanders is going to leave Jackson State and his son behind to go take a job at Florida State, even though they just gave a contract extension to Mike Norvell, because that all makes perfect sense, right? And, of course, the other talking point was that the only reason Travis Hunter committed to Jackson State 
was because he got a $1.5 million name, image, and likeness contract to go to Jackson State, supplied to him by Barstool Sports. Now, Deion Sanders himself went on ESPN's Keyshawn J. Will and Max early Thursday morning and said, quote, that's the biggest lie I've ever heard. You know what that is? That means we, that means we kicked your butt. We took what was ours, and now you got to make up an excuse why. Ain't nobody got no million and a half. I wouldn't pay my son a million and a half. Now, for those unfamiliar with the name, image, and likeness deal, that's basically a way for college athletes to make money for themselves for the first time ever, uh, legal money for themselves, where they can be in commercials, they can do TV shows, movies, they can endorse clothing and other products or whatever. They can make money for themselves, which is a step in the right direction, something I've been clamoring for for a number of years where I've always been on the side of belief that College athletes, especially college football players and basketball players who are predominantly black, should be allowed to make money while they're playing these sports. They are generating billions of dollars of revenue for old white folks. But the young black kids on the field or the court are not supposed to get any money out of this. Instead, well, yeah, you get an education. That's great. You get room and board. That's great, too. But you're a part of a multi-billion dollar enterprise, and you're not allowed to profit from that whatsoever? And you're the reason people are watching this shit? The NCAA has billion-dollar TV contracts to show football and basketball games. Ain't nobody tuning into a football game to watch Nick Saban on the sideline clap his hands. You're tuning in to watch a black athlete like Bryce Young throw touchdown passes. That's why you watch the games. So the people who are the reason for you watching the game in the first place should be allowed to profit off of what is going on. I'm a huge fan of the name, image, and likeness deal. I think it's long overdue because, like I said, I believe that college athletes, especially football and basketball players, should get paid based on the amount of money and revenue that they generate on a yearly basis. So even if Travis Hunter got $1.5 million to go to Jackson State, who fucking cares? It's legal now. It's okay. I have no problem with any of this. I'm in favor of all this 110%. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is extraordinary. I'm ecstatic. I'm over the moon about this happening. This is a coup. This is a legendary, this is almost a heist that Deion Sanders was able to pull, taking a kid from Florida State and bringing him to Jackson State. If you had told someone 20 or 30 years ago that a kid, a five-star football recruit, the best player in the country coming out of high school, was going to decommit from Florida State and go to Jackson State, they would have looked at you like you just took a shit on yourself. They would have looked at you crazy, like, what the hell's wrong with you? What have you been smoking, and where can I find it? In 2021, a five-star recruit decommitted from Florida State and went to Jackson State, an HBCU that plays FCS college football, which is basically Division I AA. That really happened, and I hope... It opens the floodgates. I hope other kids, other black athletes, forego going to Florida State, Alabama, Texas, Ohio State, LSU, USC, even Notre Dame. I hope they forego all these other colleges and come home and play for the HBCUs. Keep it in-house. Keep our people with our people. I have zero objection to that. I will never have any sort of objection to our people, black people, Staying with black people. That will never be a problem to me. Tremendous job by Deion Sanders and nothing but the best of luck. 
and prosperity and goodwill and good fortune to Travis Hunter. And good luck to you, young man. Nothing but the best to you, to Deion Sanders and Jackson State and all of the HBCUs. Keep pushing, keep going forward, keep growing this thing. I love seeing it, man. I really do. I can't express that enough. I remember telling my girlfriend, um, I told my lady this a while ago, that I told, her, I told her this a few times, as a matter of fact. One of my biggest regrets in life is that I didn't do better in school, so I could have gone to a college, and in particular, an HBCU. I was born and raised in Maryland. Howard University is right there in D.C. You got Norfolk State right there in Norfolk, Virginia. You got Hampton right there in Hampton, Virginia. I really, I, I'm being honest about this. I really do regret not doing better in school, so I myself could have attended school, could have attended class at the HBCU. Um, it's over and done with now. It is what it is, but that's, that's always been something I thought about for like the past five or ten years. You know, what would, what would life have been like for me if I had done better in high school and taken shit more seriously and was able to go to an HBCU and have that experience and be around people who look like me and interact with people who look like me more often than I did growing up in Frederick. It's something I always think about. Um, what would life have been if I had gone to an HBCU? Uh, two more things to address before I take off on this podcast. Uh, one more, I guess a housekeeping note. One thing I forgot to mention about the Chargers-Chiefs game, there was an ugly scene, an incident early in the game with Chargers tight end Donald Parham who was trying to catch a pass on fourth and goal in the back of the end zone but from Justin Herbert and fell to the ground head first, was knocked unconscious, taken off the field on a stretcher. His body was immobilized, his face mask removed. You knew it was a serious situation. As he was taken off the field, uh, first of all, I thought Fox did a shitty job overall on this. Uh, this man's laying on the ground unconscious, clearly knocked out. Clearly this is a serious injury. And Fox zooms in on his face, I thought that was distasteful. Uh, the second part was, you know, they finally get him on the stretcher. They're taking him off the field. You see his arms and his hands kind of moving uncontrollably. Like he has no control over his own bodily movements, which appeared to be, it looked like he was having a seizure. With his hands and his arms shaking the way it did, that's the telltale sign usually that some kind of traumatic head injury has occurred. If you watch boxing or MMA long enough, you've seen guys before get knocked out and they're on the ground unconscious, but their hands and their arms are moving with no control over them because the person laying on the ground is unconscious. So this guy's being taken off the field on a stretcher with his hands and arms shaking and, and shivering and moving in a way that he can't even control it because he has no awareness of where he's at right now. He's unconscious. And Joe Buck, an absolutely worthless commentator not only in football but in baseball a clear direct beneficiary of nepotism and white privilege idiotically nonsensically moronically says you know it's pretty cold out here in LA for this time of year it's pretty cold down there on field level maybe that's part of the reason why his hands were shaking the way they were as he was being stretched off the field Joe Buck is a fucking idiot the fact that he even said that out loud says a lot about him. And the fact that he didn't come back on air and apologize for it throughout the game says a lot about him and Fox. That was one of the more egregiously stupid comments I've heard anyone say in a long time. This man smacked the ground head first. He clearly is dealing with a traumatic head injury. And Joe Buck says it's cold down there. I live in California. I, 
I was stationed in Osnard, California when I was in the Navy. I've been in Southern California. I've been in Northern California. I grew up in Maryland. It has never been that fucking cold in California to where someone is shaking because of the cold weather. It never gets below freezing out here. The coldest it's ever going to get is like 45. Whether that's the Bay or SoCal, it's never going to be below freezing unless you go out in the fucking wilderness somewhere, out in the mountains somewhere in California. But in L.A., 45 or 50 is the coldest it's going to get. If that's the case, Joe Buck, how come no one else was shaking and shivering on the field? Get Joe Buck the fuck out of here, man. I mean that literally. I hope he gets disciplined for that. He probably won't because he's Joe Buck, but that was one of the stupidest things I've ever heard anyone say about anything. Joe Buck is a piece of shit. The second thing I wanted to say was a week ago, unfortunately, the NFL world, the NFL family, lost a member of its family, Demarius Thomas, star, very good, phenomenal wide receiver for the Denver Broncos for a lot of years. There was a four- to five-year window of this brother's career where he was one of the top five receivers in the NFL, uh, a, a tremendous football player for the Denver Broncos, a key member of them winning a Super Bowl in 2015 and them reaching a Super Bowl in 2013, an outstanding football player, dead at the age of 33. They found him at his place of residence in the shower in a seizure of his own. Uh, he had been involved in a car wreck, I want to say about a year ago, or maybe a few months ago, that led to him having seizures on a regular basis. And he was alone and unattended and had a seizure in, in the shower, and someone found him about a day later. He was already gone. Uh, very unfortunate situation. I thought Peyton Manning said it best about Demarius Thomas. He was a Hall of Fame football player, but an even better person. And I thought that was tremendous of Peyton to say. And Peyton went to um, Denver over the weekend. The Broncos honored Demarius Thomas over the weekend in their game versus the Detroit Lions. They intentionally lined up in their first play from scrimmage with only 10 men on the field. Cortland Sutton, their current star wide receiver, sat, took a knee on the sideline and waited for his turn to come into the game. Detroit declined to delay a game penalty. Class move by Detroit. Class move by Denver, uh, honoring Demarius Thomas over the weekend. They had a memorial set up outside the stadium. That's where fans and former players and teammates could come pay their respects. As I said, Peyton Manning went to Denver to pay his respects. A lot of Demarius's former teammates offered their condolences and well wishes on Twitter. You can see he was a beloved guy. People held him in high regard, had a lot of respect for him. Um, and, like, and like I said, man, just as a fan, for someone watching from the outside, he was a great football player. He really was, man, just a special football player to watch. And um, it was sad hearing about what happened to DT, man, because like I said, man, a tremendous football player. And you hear, you hear the guys who knew him personally and the way they spoke about him um, you know, you can tell he was he was a good guy, man. And a lot of people just appreciated him and loved him and respected him as a person, as a man. He just retired not too long ago. I want to say about June of this year, like right before this season started. He was only 33. He can still be in the NFL right now. But he had just retired not too long ago. Young man, 33 years old. I mean, it's just one of those things you, you hate to hear about things like that. And you see that with football players. You see the incident with Donald Parham. And you hear about what happened to Demarius Thomas, and you hear, I heard today about uh, Vincent Jackson, former wide receiver for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who passed away about a year ago, and it was discovered that he had stage two CTE. You think about all that, you process that, and it just shows you how precious life is and what football players go through on a daily basis and the things that build up within them from week to week, day to day, game by game. 
They take so much punishment. They take so much abuse to their body, to the head, to the feet, and everywhere in between. And it just it takes a toll on you. And a lot of these guys, you know, every now and then you hear about these guys just passing away very early. And it usually has something to do with the injuries and the, the physical punishment they took while playing football. And it just shows you how how physical and tough and demanding of a game this is and how it can have lasting impact with you for the rest of your life or it can greatly shorten your lifespan. Um, so just once again, it's an unfortunate, just terrible situation with Demarius Thomas. Uh, condolences to his family. Rest in peace to him. Rest in peace, Vincent Jackson. Uh, Donald Parham, tight end from the L.A. Chargers, currently in stable condition. You hope his situation improves for the better. Uh, scary situation, man. When I hear about Vincent Jackson being in stage two CTE and I hear about Demarius Thomas's seizures and things like that, and him dying at the age of 33, and when I see what happens to Parham tonight, it always makes me think about all these old-timers, all these guys who will be online and in conversation and wherever who lament about how soft and pussified current modern-day football is. And back in my day, everything was so much tougher and all this shit. There's no such thing as a soft football player. you got to be a man to step between those white lines and put the pads on and risk life and limb for three and a half hours every Sunday afternoon. This is, this is a grown man's sport. I don't care what rules have been put in. The rules have been put in for a reason, to protect players. Uh, unless you're a bloodthirsty football fan who just has no regard for other people's life, you appreciate the rules that have been put in. A lot of people complain about it and say it's, it's soft and you can't hit people anymore and you can't touch the quarterbacks anymore. The rules have been put in for a reason. I tell people all the time, if you tried to play 2021 football with 1981 rules, someone's going to get killed. Someone's going to die on a football field. You're going to have a live casualty in 4K HD TV. These guys are too big, too strong, and too fast to be playing football with the outlaw rules you had in 1979, 1980, wherever the fuck the case might be. Guys back then, with all due respect, I have nothing but respect for every man who played football ever in the 102-year history of the NFL. I have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for every man who ever stepped between the white lines and played football for a living. But with that being said, the men who played – Back in the day, 30, 40 years ago, those guys were not physically on par with the guys playing right now. Clear night and day difference between the physical size and makeup of what you saw 30 and 40 years ago and what you see currently today. These guys are huge, and they all run fast. They're all 4'4", four, 4'5", four, four, guys at 250, 260 pounds. You cannot play football the way you played it 40 years ago. The rules had to change. And I know it's never going to happen, but I just wish that people would understand how fragile the game has to be right now because these guys are too big and you can't play football the way you played it 40 years ago. Someone's going to get killed. The rules have to be what it is right now. Respect what these men go through on a, on a weekly basis because you got young brothers like Vincent Jackson, Demarius Thomas, and other guys like that. Dave Durison died early, I think in his 50s. Junior Seau, another great example. These guys go through a lot for our, for our entertainment and our joy and for all of us football fans out there. And I think there should be more respect and appreciation for the men who put the pads on and step between those white lines for three and a half hours on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday night or a Thursday night, whatever the case may be, 
These are grown men. These are football players. There is no pussies in the NFL. I don't give a fuck what anyone says. I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that. Uh, so once again, rest in peace, Demarius Thomas, Vincent Jackson, Junior Seau, Dave Dewerson. Respect the game and respect the men who play the game. I just wanted to put that out there. It's a public service announcement. Respect the game and respect the men who play it. So with all of that being said, thank you once again for listening to this episode of the Dion Gordon Podcast. Eternally grateful, always humble, very much appreciative. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, picture me rolling. I'm out.